This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Clyde Snow and Sessions, based in Salt Lake City with offices in Oregon and California. For over 65 years, Clyde Snow has represented clients throughout the West. Clyde Snow, serious about solutions. Hello, and welcome to Ripple Effect, a podcast putting water into context. I'm Emily Lewis, your host, and I'm a water attorney here in Salt Lake City, Utah, practicing creative solutions to today's and tomorrow's water problems. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to the 29th episode of Ripple Effect. Today, I have with me Dave Scudis, who is a watershed manager with the Mile High Flood District. And the reason that I wanted to have Dave on is one, he has one of the more engaging LinkedIn profiles I've seen in a while. And so I was very attracted by his shiny videos and bright images. But two, I just really think that the Denver area is doing some really cool things with their urban watersheds. And here in the Salt Lake area, we have a little bit of a different geography, but also not so much being kind of range and plains. And so I, I thought it'd be kind of a cool idea to hear about what they're doing and then kind of see possibly if there are some ways that we maybe could apply those concepts here um, along the Wasatch Front. So Dave, if you could please, could you kind of just give us a, a little bit of the background of kind of like who you are, you know, what your background is and, and what your role is um, at the Mile High Flood District? Yeah, thanks. Well, thanks for having me on, Emily. Uh, yeah, my background is in civil engineering. Uh, I've been working in the industry for around 20 years. I spent the first nine years as a consultant doing various design and construction projects for different clients around the country. Uh, moved to Denver in 2004. And when I moved here, and I was a consultant at the time, the firm I worked at, we did a lot of work for an organization called the Urban Drainage and Flood Control District. That's, we changed our name and that's who the Mile High Flood District used to be called that. And what I found was I, the projects and the people to me were the most interesting that I got to work with and work on. And one of the things I really appreciated about the work was that not only were we building really functional flood control, stream restoration types of projects, but there was also this really big motivation to do placemaking. So mm -hmm. not just having functional flood control projects, but actually creating places that really on a daily basis, you know, because floods are really rare. And so on a daily basis, what kind of value do these waterways bring to the community? And so as a consultant, I got a lot of value out of working on those projects, getting to design them, getting to help uh, out in the field during construction and all of that. And eventually an opportunity came up to go and work for the, the flood district uh, to be a project manager. And I've really enjoyed that getting to be in more of a leadership and decision maker role on some of these projects, getting to decide really what success looks like on some of these projects, how we approach them, go about them. And really now my role has evolved into what's called a watershed manager. So basically I manage an entire region of the Metro Denver area. And I deal with anything that goes on in the waterways in that area and everything from floodplain mapping to master planning, design, construction, and maintenance. But we, uh, we were formed in 1965 in the aftermath of a really massive flood on the South Platte River. It's the biggest waterway in our city. And really we were formed to help facilitate the rhyme and reason to how our waterways are managed as they cross the 40 city and county boundaries that we have in the Denver metro area. 
And our, our basic mission, mission and vision are to protect people, property, and the environment. And we do that through preservation, mitigation, and education. Awesome. I love placemaking, by the way. I am going to steal that <laughs> and use it somehow in my own work. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't come up with it on my own. I, I steal it from landscape architects. They, they, they use words like that all the time. I know. Us lawyers, we're too lawyerly. We need to start really embracing kind of the, <laughs> the actual descriptors. <laughs> that's awesome. So I just, so I have to tell you, your website, the Mile High Flood District website is fantastic, by the way. And listeners should really go look at your website and you have a lot of really good videos. I have to tell you, you guys work on fascinating projects. Like I think it's such a cool idea. And I like that you're a special district that covers multiple jurisdictions. You know, you cross municipal boundaries because, you know, water doesn't go in a straight line, you know, and I think it's, it's really a, a kind of a cool concept to have um, kind of one district over this kind of like large space. And so I highly recommend the listeners, if you're always listening, to go check out their, their website because there's a lot of really neat projects going on. So on that front, could you kind of walk us through, you know, how you guys achieve this mission of, you know, rethinking your urban waterways? Yeah. Well, you know, it's really been an evolution and I have to credit the people who founded the organization and were working and, and leading it in the 70s, 80s and 90s because there's always been a focus on and a valuing of multi-objective projects. It's it's been something that's been ingrained in the fabric of our organization since our inception. I would say that in more recent years, especially the last 10 years, that's really evolved into really taking these multifaceted, multidiscipline looks at a particular reach of a particular stream we're working on, considering its context within the river system or stream system that it's in, but also the trail systems, the ecological systems we're working in. And so we really value recruiting really diverse project teams that can really especially if we're going to do a capital project, it basically looks like a bomb went off. You know, when we go and we, we bring in yellow iron and we're just going to, we're going to tear it up. Right. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, you have such an opportunity to really create, generally speaking, depending on how much room you have to work with, you have a lot of opportunity to create something anew. And how do you make that, that infrastructure, that linear infrastructure be as hardworking as possible? And so we're very con context sensitive, depending on, you know, where we're at. Are we in a, a big wide open space? Are we in, we in an urban retrofit situation? That sort of thing. But, you know, we bring in landscape architects, we bring in ecologists, obviously engineers and, and contractors. And we really think through what all will go into making this as successful a project in as many ways as possible when mm -hmm. we're done. And the, the beauty of it is many of the things that will make a project great tend to not even be that expensive. It's just you have to think through it and actually build the project in a way that makes some of these other functions possible. Mm -hmm. And so like what we want those things that it's not the expensive thing, but it's kind of like the icing on the cake that really makes a, a project sing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. What takes like a standard, you know, urban restoration project from kind of a, you know, vanilla project to something that really, you know, makes it different? Like what, like an example of kind of something you guys have added? Mm -hmm. Well, I'd say that protecting people from floods, people in infrastructure and property from floods is always foundational to whatever we're doing. 
And so many other things come down to how much space we have to work with. But I think one short way or simple way to look at it is we've really migrated towards a design approach that tries to rely more and more on vegetation for stability than rock and concrete, you know, because that was really kind of an approach from decades ago. If you think about the LA River as the poster child for engineered concrete channel, you know, when I <laughs> when I watched the movie Grease as a kid, I had no idea they were drag racing in a riverbed. Uh, I was literally just going to be or, like like the drag races in LA. <laughs> right, right. I had no idea as a kid. I had no concept that, that what that was. It was just this concrete mm-hmm. place and they're just like driving around. So, you know, over time we've migrated further and further away from using that much concrete, but really where we're at today is we try to optimize the extent to which we can build a stream corridor to mimic natural stream processes. That's really where we start. And then depending on how much space we have to work with, that tends to be the biggest dictator of the extent to which we can actually achieve that, right? Mm -hmm. So um, how narrow is the corridor? Does that mean we're gonna need to put in walls or not? Or do we have plenty of width for the floodplain to roam freely, for the creek to migrate as it would in its undisturbed setting and that sort of thing? So that would be kind of the starting point. But then we also consider uh, the human element. So what extent to which are people going to be interacting with this waterway? Are there parks? Is there a school nearby? Is there a trail system going through? And what sort of uses or programming are going to happen within this space as well? So we consider all these different functions. Because mm-hmm. if you're thinking about it too, I mean, how many are you guys? Did you say you are 40 municipalities that you dealt with, like a 40 different jurisdictions, or Correct. some very large amount? Yeah, and mm-hmm. so you're probably also dealing with kind of like the urban sprawl as well. So I'm assuming that you have quite a variety mm-hmm. of kind of environments that you work in, from you kind of like mm-hmm. older neighborhoods where this is not really a, you know, a thought when they were originally plotting things, to kind of more new and developing you know neighborhoods. So I bet you have a whole variety of kind of palettes that you work with. Yeah, we do for sure. And one of the interesting things that we are starting to figure out is when you have a a new development that's going to come in, it's 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 open prairie now and they're going to build 600 homes. You know, if we really want this waterway going through this new neighborhood, then maybe it doesn't even look like a waterway now. It's like a first order stream. There's hardly any water in it. But once it urbanizes around it, it's going to put a bunch of water in it. Uh, how do we then preserve enough land for that stream to behave naturally? You know, and sometimes it's driven just by straight flood hydraulics, but sometimes we need to think about the geomorphic context of that creek and how much room should we say the developer can't actually build homes on just because we want to make this stream as naturalized as possible once the urbanization comes and puts the water in there. But then the other sort of tension that happens is that sort of depression or or swale that was there that isn't really much of a stream before the urbanization happens. Geologically speaking, it's not really in a condition to handle all that much water. So I use the word naturalized because we often do have to import rock, loose rock and things like that to keep the creek glued together once the urbanization puts all that water in there. Mm-hmm. So we, we definitely deal with a lot of land development and getting into some sources of tension with how much room we want them to leave for the creek. It gets interesting sometimes. Yeah. And so when you say, and just kind of for some of our listeners, because um, we have, you know, people who are very much in the water field and 
just to kind of like a lot of interested citizens. When you mentioned like putting water into the creek, you know, could you kind of unpack that a little bit? You know, I'm assuming you're talking about with the addition of like hard spaces and development, you know, there's no place for that water to go and it's, it, and it's you know, it needs to be go somewhere. So, you know, is that kind of what you're talking about in terms of like the volume of water that is going to be put into that to that environment? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, you know, if you imagine a, an open prairie and it's just filled with grass, imagine buffalo munching on it, that sort of thing. And, and if it rains on that, the ground acts like a sponge and just soaks it in. And it would take a lot of rain for any to run off along the surface towards a receiving stream. Mm-hmm. And once you take all that prairie and you pretty much cover it with rooftops and streets, now you have all these surfaces that won't soak in that water and you get a lot more runoff that ends up into the waterways. And when it comes to streams and how they behave naturally, uh, they're gonna be most impacted by more frequent flow events, what we might call like a two-year flow event. And we found that once you go from a prairie to a fully urbanized watershed, just say single family houses, you're gonna see 40, 50 times more water go into that that waterway for a two-year event, which is the storm event that's probably big enough and common enough that it really does the most work on the creek with, mm. with making it want to erode and migrate and that sort of thing. So that's what I talk about when I talk about urbanization having a big impact on the waterways. 40 or 50 times more is a lot more water. I didn't, that, that makes, hmm, I'm kind of thinking about that a little bit differently now. Okay. And then I'm assuming too, with climate change, I mean, we found here on the Wasatch, on the Wasatch front, I think it was two or three years ago, we had like a 500 year storm event twice in a year. <laughs> And so one of the things we've been thinking a lot too, we are mostly urbanized here in Salt Lake County on the east side. And and most of the growth is is actually happening to the south of us in Utah County and kind of like along the west side of of Salt Lake County, but also just these huge deluges of water as well. So I feel like, you know, not only are you going to have to contend with developing like you are, but just like also we're seeing so much systematic change in our water systems. And so are you guys also kind of accounting for climate disruptions and kind of the the big storms that are coming going to come as well? I mean, how do you guys account for those kind of events? Yeah, it's an interesting question. It's one we get asked every so often. And really the the short answer I'd give you is that we feel like the way we determine what a 100-year flood is or what is a flood, how much water are we talking when there's a flood, that there's so much variability and uncertainty in calculating that, that at least where we're at, we don't think, at least right now, it means we need to rethink how we're calculating how much water we're talking when we're talking about a flood. I think if you were on the coast and maybe more prone to hurricanes, I could see that being a bigger concern. But at least when it comes to like a 100-year flood or 1% chance flood, we aren't necessarily changing what we're doing so far because of climate change, at least not yet. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of your standard plans are going to stay the same. And then because they're hopefully adapted to the environment, the, the impacts would still be less even in those larger events. Yeah, we feel that way. And I think, and, and I guess my point is that what we, when we calculate those sorts of values, there's a lot of inherent conservatism built into them, factors mm-hmm. of safety, sort of, if you will. But also, you know, when you when we look at flood statistics, it, it is looking at data that's in the past, looking backwards. Mm-hmm. And we, but we do, I don't know, every 10 years or so, look at the next 10 years of data. And does that mean we may need to recalibrate some things? And we, we have done that. And so as we get 10 years more of data, you know, maybe it'll be time to, to recalibrate some of the statistics we're using. Mm-hmm. 
so in these projects, so you have like general flood control. Do you also include like water quality considerations? Like we, for example, here in Utah, we just passed a state rule, either in statute or rule, I don't exactly remember the authority, where new developers are, in, it's called low impact development essentially. And like they have to, on their own properties, like create like a little bioswell for retention of storm water and, you know, kind of like all these standards for new developments to kind of address water quality concerns. Is that an inherent kind of part of what you guys do as well? Or is, it, is water quality and kind of flood, how do those two interact in your designs? Yeah, well, when it comes to working with new developments, we are working on new methods, uh, ways of laying out the land that will promote more infiltration and really is, is very in line with what you're describing as low impact development. Right now in the Denver region, we don't have land use codes and things like that at the local level that really incentivize developers to develop a different way right now because, you know, they're they're largely about time in many mm -hmm. cases. How, how can we get to approval? And right now we don't have our system set up to facilitate low impact development. That is, that is where we do went ahead. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the more in-stream, in-river capital projects, you know, that's where the, all that stuff ends up. So when it comes to trying to improve water quality there in the receiving stream, that's where we think the vegetation, the approach we use to naturalized channels to the extent practical and, and using lots and lots of healthy vegetation. It makes it the bestest BMP. We've, we've actually had some people kind of jokingly call it that. If you've ever heard of mm -hmm. BMPs or best management practices, mm -hmm. if you have a naturalized stream corridor, it's actually the bestest management practice you can have because it's going to do a lot of work on cleaning that water. Mm -hmm. I would say when it comes to other projects, we're very opportunistic about trying to improve water quality where we can. Uh, sometimes it might be, hey, there's a stormwater pipe that's coming out and it's going to drain down into the waterway. And is there something we can do between that pipe and the receiving stream? And it might just be 50 feet. It might be 100 feet. Is there something we can do to promote infiltration and, and get, get it going through some vegetation there instead of just lining it with rock and, and concrete? You know, mm -hmm. so we even try to just be opportunistic with little things like that. Yeah, I can see how that make a big difference, too. If you had a number of those kind of outflows, you know, along a large stream reach, you know, those small activities could probably have a pretty big impact, actually. Yeah, especially for like the chronic daily flows, because some of those, they just have a little bit of water that oozes out all the time. And boy, if you can be treating that little ooze, mm -hmm. you know, that ooze, it just adds a lot of stuff in the long term. And, you know, it's not going to treat a big flow coming out of a pipe that's just shooting out. But if you've got that ooze and you can actually treat that between the pipe and the river, that's that's providing some benefit. Yeah, definitely. I wanted to follow up on kind of something you said earlier. So this is going to be a tad of a circular conversation. When you were first talking about, you know, how you kind of first approach a project, you know, you talked about kind of the amount of size that you had to work with. And then you kind of talked about working with the developers and kind of some tension with the developers. What is like the jurisdiction or like the authority that the Mile High Flood District has for acquiring that land? Like, is that something that you work with the local municipality on in terms of like they designated or reserve it from development in their in their land use plan or like how does that tranche of land along the stream get reserved for this kind of project? Yeah, that's a good question. Being a special district in that we focus really solely on the waterways in, in various capacities, 
A real benefit that gives us is that we lack some of the competing interests that local governments sometimes have, mm-hmm. as we really just get to be advocates for the waterway. And really, that's what we do. The other thing we have that uh, helps us have some influence is we have money. And we have money to build design and construction projects. We also have money for maintenance. So that's a big thing we do is we help maintain waterways around the metro area. But one thing we did starting back in 1980 was when a new development was getting built, we found over time that some developments either weren't implementing master plan improvements, or if they were, they were doing such a horrible job that it inevitably landed in our laps to fix it later. And we decided, okay, well, we're not going to do that anymore. So we developed what's called a maintenance eligibility program. And so It means in practical terms, it means for the local governments, when they have a new development coming in, we are a referral agency that reviews the plans for anywhere where they're going to touch a major drainage way. And the local governments want us to approve the design for anything that's going to happen in the waterway. And they want us to accept this waterway through this development for our future maintenance because that's money we can spend on the local government's behalf that they don't have to. And so it's kind of like a little bit of a carrot. Yeah, we kind of call it the carrot hammer or the carrot stick because it's kind of a little bit of both. It's like the carrot to to get them to want our funding and to require the developments to achieve maintenance eligibility from us. So we kind of get to be a a gatekeeper in that way. That's perfect. I'm going to steal carrot stick. Um, yeah. place making and bestest management practice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't make any of those up, but I'm happy to pass them along. That's awesome. Okay. That's nice though. So then I'm assuming, so you probably have some folks who are kind of like full on land use planners on your staff who are the folks who review those plans. Is that kind of one of the technical areas that um, you guys hire for and, and employ? Uh, we don't actually employ any land planners, although, so that's kind of the thing we're trying to get um, more savvy on is the manner in which land develops, because what we found is that sometimes, and I, and I found this to be totally true, especially with developers, is once they lay out a development in a certain way, and it's going to yield a certain number of lots, boy, they get anchored to that number. And if you start making decisions further down the line that somehow reduce the number of lots that they're going to be able to build and boy, that doesn't go well. Mm-hmm. And so what, what we're trying to learn is what is, what are the steps in the process of land developing and, and how do we interject ourselves earlier in that process? Like well prior to platting, because we find if we can get the stream corridor wide enough, then the other stuff can work itself out a lot easier. But really uh, as an engineer, I actually am one of the people that I review development plans, mm-hmm. uh, it's, but it's really mostly from an engineering perspective for the most part. So they kind of come with it pretty fully baked and you kind of see what you can work with. And then if they're amenable, you maybe make some changes, but the plan kind of, once you get it, it's what it is. And then unless they want those maintenance, the carrot stick. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a balance. If they're doing something yeah. really, really bad, we can tell, tell the local governments and they, and they, and local governments tend to be staffed with pretty savvy people too. And mm-hmm. they, they'll head stuff off too. And they'd be like, yeah, that's, that's no dice. You can't be doing that. We've also developed some tools. So, you know, back to where I was talking about trying to construct naturalized channel corridors, especially in newly urbanizing areas as well. We've gone so far as to, for all of the waterways in the metro area, 
And we consider drainage to be major once it has a tributary area of 130 acres, which doesn't actually sound like a lot, but it's enough water where you probably shouldn't be relying on a pipe to carry it when you have that much tributary area. And so we've did this GIS exercise where we mapped throughout the entire metro area, every creek, if you just used a really conservative shear stress calculation, and shear stress really tells you the extent to which the vegetation can withstand it. If you just had a just a simple vegetated rectangular shape, how wide would the, would the corridor need to be? Mm-hmm. And we mapped these corridors for every waterway in the metro area. So at least developers have a starting point that they know hmm. that that's the maximum we would ask for. And if they actually do real design work, it's most likely going to be plenty narrower than that. But at least they have a, they have a bookend they can start with. And where is that information housed? I mean, is that something that's with the local municipality that, that, that they would provide to the developer? Like when they come in, you know, first start uh, looking, have an inkling that they want to do development or they come to you or what, you know, how, how do they get their hands on that map in a, in a timely and helpful fashion? Yeah, we have it. It's freely available on our website through one of our uh, GIS maps that anybody can click on and and look at. So it's mostly just getting the word out and telling them, hey, go and look at this. Okay. Mm -hmm. But yeah, otherwise, ideally, we have a pre-application meeting or something early in the process where we can get in front of them and point them to it as well before they get way down the road with their development and get anchored to the number of lots. And then, oh man, then there's trouble. (laughs) Yeah. And the reason I asked for that is because I would say 20% of my job right now is dealing with that kind of trouble. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's not so much here in Utah. I mean, I don't deal much with um, stream waterways, but our urbanizing areas are understandably so farmland. And mm-hmm. so we have the issue of canal encroachments. And so one of the big issues we've been having here in Utah is trying to figure out how to timely get information about canals in front of developers so that, you know, canal easements for maintenance and operations and repairs can be um, properly taken into account before uh, a developer gets, um, you know, their mindset on their various plot developments. Yeah, that's where information is key. And GIS is so powerful that, you Mm -hmm. know, I work with some smart people and I don't take credit for figuring that out by any means, but I work with some smart people who did and, and it took some time and it took some quality control and fixing it here and there, but it's an investment that then has aged well and it's really useful. Yeah, I find that people are generally pretty open. It, one, I agree with you completely, you get there early enough, but if it doesn't cost them a lot more money and it doesn't slow them down, um, you know, people are generally open to having some conversations about, you know, um, creative ways to make everything work. So. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I find with the developers, it comes down to land time and money and uh, mm-hmm. the extent to which you're trying to, I don't know, am I creating more pain for them than you need to, but uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. So then who actually like owns the land in fee? Like, is that owned by the developer and you have like the overlay and, and maintenance responsibilities on top of it? Or is it owned by the, the municipality itself? Or like, is it just like a large patchwork of, you know, who owns the actual underlying land in which these these streams and waterways um, are on top of, I guess? Yeah, as far as like the type of ownership, it's definitely a patchwork. Every community is a little bit different. Some they all insist and we insist that if it's something we'll ever get in and maintain that it needs to be in a public easement mm-hmm. or owned in fee. And some communities ask the developers to dedicate it in fee and some are fine to just have a dedicated drainage easement. An interesting thing about how we do business is we actually try not to own any land or actually have any easements in our name. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because we work in 
in these local communities, but we aren't that city or county. And so we actually want to be a helper and not a dictator. And so we'd rather that they have ownership over their own waterways and that we are called in to help sort of thing. That makes sense. That seems like a good way to, to go about it. And then I'm assuming too, then from the, from the video I saw and some, from some of your posts on LinkedIn as well, um, you know, it looks like a lot of your uh, urban waterways are also pretty closely tied in with like parks and park systems and trail systems. And so um, are they ever owned by kind of like the parks department of the town or, you know, do you work with those folks um, on a pretty regular basis? Yeah, pretty extensively depending on the location. Yeah. And there's, there's a few park districts here and there. And I think one of the beauties of the Denver metro area and definitely the foresight of the, the founders of our organization back to that multi-objective approach to projects is, you know, trails are, are huge. That's a, that's a very important to have along our waterways for the daily recreation, but also for our maintenance. Mm -hmm. And what it's really facilitated is we have these green threads that kind of work their way through just about every neighborhood in the city. And it's hard to be more than six blocks from one of these waterways pretty much anywhere in the city. And that's a really cool thing. Yeah, we had a water law conference in Denver a couple of years ago, um, just right downtown. And we all had a cleanup day on Cherry, Cherry Creek. Is that mm -hmm. right? Is that down mm -hmm. in the middle of Denver? But it was lovely. I was like, oh, this is a really nice little stream right to the middle of town. <laughs> um, it, it was great. So out of all the projects you've worked on, uh, which one is your favorite? Hmm. Yeah, I, probably, I could probably pick two. Uh, that's a good question. And, and they both involve railroads. And I think it's because the railroads are so notoriously painful to deal with in various capacities. But on the one, it was this big project that had all sorts of things going on. And it was a 40-acre site, former industrial site, creek running through it, lots of dumping, different things, an old, old industrial building that we actually purchased and knocked down. And adjacent to it was a railroad track. And on this railroad track, there was going to be new passenger rail get added mm. with, a, with a station right in the center of this 40-acre site with the creek running through it. And over the course of 10 years, I got to work on this really crazy multi-discipline, multi-stakeholder, like $25 million project oh, wow. to mm -hmm. restore a mile of creek, lower the floodplain by five feet. We built a new pond and we built this all in a way that when people are at the train station arriving or they're waiting for their train, they have this platform that gets to look out upon this beautifully restored nature and open space corridor. And it's just the neatest thing. And we created all these spots for people to get down and stepping stones to walk along the creek. Uh, we're, there's going to be some nature play that's going to get built here in the next year where there's going to be logs and trees and different things get used to make uh, basically formal play elements in one part of it. And it's in a, adjacent to a really underserved community, a lower income neighborhood. And it's just been a really cool project that accomplished so much. And I, I enjoy getting to walk around it, getting to take my daughter there. She gets to run across the stepping stones and it's, and it's just a blast. I just found that project fulfilling partially because of how long it took, how much fun the team was to work with, how much we accomplished and how nice it is to look at today. It really was great. Love that yeah. project. It sounds like a real visceral experience. You kind of feel it. It's your place. You've made some place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We made a, We made this place. Yeah, yeah it was pretty cool. It was very cool. Yeah. Awesome. Sweet. And did you say you had another one that you really liked? 
Yeah, there's another one. Uh, it was a uh, one project along Wonderland Creek in the city of Boulder. And that one, gosh, it was around eight year long project. We had to cross the railroad tracks and we actually had to have the railroad come and build us a new bridge on their tracks for us. Mm -hmm. You know, we had to pay them to do it mm -hmm. and to get them to do that was, was crazy. And it was just like, but it was like this super constrained site. That was another one that was like a mile long, had, I don't know, like five road crossings, utilities everywhere. We had to cut down something like 400 trees. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And this is in the city of Boulder, which they're, they're very fond of their trees in Boulder. So that was, that was very dramatic. And, but after all of that, we got this project done and it, and it reduced the floodplain off of 450 multifamily housing units. So like apartments and condos. And it's an area where Colorado had a massive flood in 2013. And along this Creek, we almost had somebody die. So it was really fulfilling to get to build that project that is also one that's nice. We, we built a new trail with uh, great separated crossings of these roads and of the railroad and getting to ride my bike along that. That's a really fulfilling one too. And, and to see these people that, you know, the next time a flood happens, that one apartment where somebody almost died, well, if that same flood, ha flood happened today, that lady wouldn't, that wouldn't happen, you know, mm -hmm. and I, that's very fulfilling. Yeah, that is cool. I, I love I, well, I, one of the reasons I just love working in water is because one, it's like infinitely interesting, <laughs> you know, like mm -hmm. it's, there's never an easy water question, but I just also love that it's a real thing. You know what I mean? Like you, you, like you can go out and you can, you know, go do a canal company tour and go look at the canal company, you know, go look at the canals and actually see, see what's happening and see the water move, or you can, you know, work with the municipality and go, you know, right, right along with their, with their employees as they check all their pipes and stuff. And so I think it's just such a fun field to work in because because you actually get to go and see what you're doing. And so it sounds like you have a little more aesthetically pleasing job, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I uh, definitely developed a photography sort of hobby and it's because these projects I work on are so photogenic. And the interesting thing though, is I will say I still do work on storm drain pipe projects as well because we are a flood district. And so there is a time and a place if there is no waterway and you don't have that as an option, you need to put pipes in the ground i just find that the before and after photos are less satisfying that's for sure <laughs> yeah i bet so yeah bet so. Uh, yeah there's like a patch in the road where you where you dug into it pretty much yeah exactly but you know it's important that it's there yeah for um, sure so you know it's i mean I just, I'm, I'm really, I'm really excited about your organization. Honestly, I think that, um, you know, just from kind of like the, the, the initial kind of uh, look into kind of what you guys have going on, it seems like you have a pretty unique, uh, I know we've said multidisciplinary a lot uh, on this, on this talk, but like, it's, it's really seems like it's built into your structure to get all the input from many voices on the front end, mm -hmm. um, which I think is one, a really good organizational principle to have to begin with, you know, I think it you know, saves lots of time and money. So, you know, Denver is not unique, you know, well, it is unique. It's a very special place. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> it's lovely. I, I actually very much like Denver, but uh, urban waterways are not unique to Denver. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if there are, you know, because like we here in the Wasatch, we have, um, you know, the Jordan River is kind of cuts right through 
the valley floor. We've got, um, you know, the Wasatch Canyons and, you know, uh, all the streams that come off the Wasatch Canyons. And there is an organization in town that is interested in kind of like daylighting the streams because many of them kind of are, have been, you know, put into pipes and channels throughout the city. But also kind of very much, and not on a knock on our, our Salt Lake City Public Utilities, they do a fantastic job, but like, I would consider it kind of more of like a, an industrial view of how our water gets from one place to another. And I think that we're definitely, you know, the conversation is, is very active here about how, how we kind of modify that. What recommendations would you have or thoughts would you have for kind of like other areas that are trying to looking to kind of implement some of these ideas and practices and thoughts and trying to kind of execute some um, new ways of, of dealing with their urban waterways? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, uh, several things jump to mind. And I would say that uh, I there's this quote by Bill Gates that I, I love and I use a lot. And it's, People overestimate what they can do in a year, but they underestimate what they can do in 10 years. And Mm -hmm. I would say that we've been around for 50 years as an organization. And so it's kind of like a tree. It didn't just get there one day, how we do business and the way we're able to build projects. It didn't just, you know, happen all of a sudden. It's something we worked at for a long, long time. And so another thing that comes to mind is that another thing I mentioned to people a lot lately is this sort of tension and balance between inclusion and efficiency. Mm-hmm. So it, it can be frustrating to be really, really inclusive and get a bunch of people involved in something because it makes it tougher and it goes slower. It just takes more time. I just, just try scheduling a meeting with 10 people or 15 people and you just versus like a meeting with five people. And you, you mm-hmm. can see right there how inefficient that gets from a time perspective. But when it comes to some of these harder working projects, multi-objective projects, that sense of inclusion is is huge. And, and also not try not to think of projects as a linear thing where we're going to do this and then we'll include this group after we figure this part out. And then we'll include, include this group after we figure this part out. It's when you're, when you're in the business of placemaking, boy, there are so many factors, especially when you're figuring out how you're going to use topography in the land. I mean, that is foundational to either allowing or inhibiting some of these other uses, just mm-hmm. bottom line. You know, one, one example would be uh, just just creating the cross section for our channel. When, when we're talking about, especially in the arid west, we, there's often we're working in waterways that don't have that much water. And mm-hmm. sometimes there's a certain amount of wetlands we really need to form to meet our permitting monitoring requirements. And inches can matter with how much water is going to sort of wick up the slopes and create wetland vegetation versus not. So if you have a four foot wide bottom and then you have these banks that go straight up for four feet or even at a four to one slope or something, you're not going to get wetlands up there very high versus if you sort of open up that cross section a little more. So even just little decisions about topography, I mean, it gets into facilitating uses of trails and pedestrian crossings, and also with what kind of vegetation is going to thrive or not. And so I think that sense of inclusion is most important early in projects. It's really that zero to 30% portion of a design on a project is when that inclusion is the most important. And then once you've kind of got the topography, the planimetrics, how you're going to use the space figured out, then people can kind of go off to figuring out their, their sort of little details that are, are more discipline specific, but that's, mm-hmm. those are a couple things I would bring up. Another thing I would bring up, especially from working in water is another big aspect of how 
we do business is inclusion with contractors. So when we do design and construction projects, we have evolved to a procurement process. We don't use just straight low bid design bid build anymore. We're, mm-hmm. we're pretty much exclusively using a CMGC style of project delivery, which basically means we hire a designer and then somewhere in the early design phases, maybe somewhere at a 10 to 20% design, we actually select a contractor and make them part of the design team. Mm -hmm. And then the contractor helps us figure out how to get the project built most effectively, gets us the most value. We manage risk uh, with that contractor. And then we basically negotiate a price. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So it's not like they just do a bid. It's not like you like put it out to bid, but like mm-hmm. you kind of get whomever uh, kind of in at the very beginning to kind of have them wrap their head around what you're trying to do. And then you get to a price point. Yeah. And that's where the kind of organization we, ha- we are, we get our funding is, is comes from a mill levy on property taxes. That's where our funding comes from. Mm-hmm. And it's a very, very reliable source of funding year after year after year. So the benefit we get is we are a repeat client all the time for this type of work. And we find that there's not an endless number of consultants and contractors that are either good at our work or like doing the work. And so we've developed these really great institutional relationships with around, you know, five, 10 consultants, five to 10 contractors who are great at doing our work. And we get a ton of value from the the repeat business that we give them. Mm-hmm. And then the other value we get out of that is we actually are able to manage risk a lot more equitably. So we don't have to just absorb all the risk for different things that can come up where you're not sure how costly something might be once you get into into construction. Mm-hmm. And so my experiences of seeing how much benefit we got and value out of being seen as a desirable customer actually led to me writing a book about it. So I, I wrote a book called The Effective Client, and that's what it's about. Kind of this long-term partnerships, kind of building those partnerships. Yeah, it's about how you benefit as a customer if you're seen as a desirable customer by the people mm-hmm. you want to hire. And, and you know, you're a lawyer and I'm sure yep. you've got different clients that make your job easier or harder, right? <laughs> Without You don't have to name names, but... Yeah. Well, it's funny though. It's the hardest ones are the little guys who I love the most. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's just the, it's just the family farm trying to figure it out, but they always have the big dollar problems that they don't have the big dollars for. And that's, it always makes me sad. Whereas the big guys always have these interesting projects, um, but they're the big guys. And so it's this interesting dichotomy, but mm-hmm. no, I, I totally get it there. You know, there are some projects that are very easy and there are projects that are more difficult. And if you could build a rapport, with those that make things easier. That sounds like a great way to do business. <laughs> yeah. And I guess the point I was sort of circling around to drive at is the, that inclusion and, and building great projects. The contractor is a big part of that. And we, you know, you, you can have a low bid project go fine, but it's also in my experience has a much higher likelihood of going south and that's mm-hmm. bad for everybody. Yeah. Especially when you're talking about floods. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Great. Well, Dave, Dave, do you have anything that we didn't get a chance to chat about that you really like about your job or you like about your projects that, you know, we didn't get a chance to touch on? I guess I would just say that I I like to tell people I get to build infrastructure that looks like nature, you know, and that's really a big part of where I get my fulfillment is, you know, we build things that make our community safer 
and healthier and more beautiful all at the same time and all in the same spot. And that's really what drives me. Yeah, that's, that'd be, I'd feel good about my day at the end of the day if those are my objectives and they were met. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. Awesome. Well, Dave, I so appreciate your time. And honestly, I really think this is a cool organization. And I really urge the listeners to go and check out your website and watch some of your videos because it is so visceral. Like I was watching the kids on the little wakeboards, wakeboarding in one of your projects. Like I think that's so cool to build those little places of community where people actually engage in the water. It's part of what they do. It's part of their recreation and their livelihood. I just think it's really cool that ostensibly people are having fun, but the background is you guys are really serving a really important public purpose. Yeah, I appreciate that. Great. Well, I might have to call you again when I see another cool project come by LinkedIn. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Nothing said in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. This podcast was produced by Mackenzie Nichols. Find Ripple Effect on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.